0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribbon. Today my guests are Chris R. Langley, Catherine E. McMillan and Russell Newton and we're talking to Chris, Catherine and Russell about their new volume, The Clergy in Early Modern Scotland, just published in the St. Andrew's Studies in and Scottish History series by Boydell in this year 2021. Chris, Catherine Russell, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having us. Thanks, It's great to see you, or from the listener's perspective to hear you. Um, can I ask before we begin talking about the book itself, how did you come, each of you, to be interested in this subject and how was the project itself born?
0: Yeah, maybe I'll start on that. So, um, this is Russell speaking uh, for, the, for the listeners. Um, and so uh, I was really interested in um, Scottish clergy. I've been working uh, when we first discussed this project on my PhD, pro, uh, PhD thesis, which was on uh, a Scottish minister, uh, William Guild, uh, an Aberdonian uh, minister. And um, it was really, uh, as I was working on that, that uh, Chris, Catherine and I, I met uh, different So, Catherine and I were uh, PhD students together. Uh, Chris and I met at uh, at the Ecclesiastical History Society conference down in London um, and and realized that we had sort of overlapping interests in uh, the the Scottish clergy. And so, um, I guess my interest came more from a biographical route of of working on on a Scottish clergyman. Um, But but Chris and Catherine uh, maybe came from a slightly different place to that. Um, We uh, initially actually put together a panel at the Scottish Church History Society conference in, in Edinburgh in 2016, I think. Uh, and, and it was off the back of that that we, we thought maybe there, there were there was some, uh, I guess, uh, opportunity to pursue, to pursue looking at the Scottish clergy a little bit more um, and that they um, maybe needed uh, more attention than they'd been given up until that point. And so uh, off the back of that, we put together Uh, a one-day conference, which uh, brought together uh, some historians who were interested in the Scottish clergy. Uh, And um, by the time we'd done that, we we felt that actually, yeah, there really was scope to say more uh, about the the Scottish ministry uh, in the early modern period, particularly between around 1500 and 1700. Uh, And with with that in mind, we sort of pursued putting the the volume together. So I guess my interest in it was was really comes from that more uh, biographical angle. I, I guess I'm interested in. I'm trained as, in, as a historian of Christianity. I'm interested in uh, things like biblical exegesis and sermons, uh, and maybe slightly different interest to, to Chris and Catherine. So maybe they can speak to to the, the things that brought them to the project as well. Yeah, um it seems
2: like a long time ago when we first started thinking about this project, um, and so it's nice to see the book come together and then retrace those those steps that brought us here. So. From from my perspective, um, I suppose it's how commonplace ministers were in in 16th and 17th century Scottish life um, and how they are a regular fixture in studies of the early one world and early one Scotland, Um, but seemingly they, due to their kind of commonality, they are regularly glossed over. And I think it started to become a little bit of a, a trope of Scottish historiography in some way, maybe even reformed scholarship, that looking at ministers is a return to the great man history or some sort of hagiographical approach. Whereas actually the minister was at the heart of a whole range of theological, social, political dynamics that were were going on at parish level, at provincial level and at, and at national level. So the, the minister being at the heart of that Um, as a really important kind of node for thinking about social history in particular is what is what interests me. And the other aspect of this that I think that from a reform perspective is that we think about these, these reformers, we think about Knox, we think about Calvin and the commemorations of individuals like that, but actually the, you know, 1100 or so parishes in Scotland were all staffed by an individual um, who may not have been uh, as as well remembered or revered as one of those figures i just mentioned but nevertheless they have a really important part in their day-to-day lives of the, of their parishioners and to to me at least get into that kind of social aspect of of um how does a minister interact with his congregation how does his, how did his his theology translate to his day-to-day interactions with them i mean we can talk about this later, but my chapter opens with a minister taking a swing at a mason. And so you and I mean not really a common occurrence, but just one of the potential kind of dynamics or interactions that, that we see. And all of the chapters really have have an element of that. And so from my perspective, it was mission accomplished, I suppose, in, in getting us to think a little bit more about that and, and maybe drawing our attention away from some of those great figures. And starting to think about ministers as, as much more kind of
1: complex uh, figures in their own way, right, I suppose. Mm. And Catherine, what about you? How did you come into this field of study?
3: Well, um, as Russell said, uh, our PhDs at Edinburgh uh, uh, overlapped. And um, my focus was on um, uh, the lived experience of religion in northeast Scotland in the, um, just after the Reformation and up to about 1610. And, um, during the, the, the primary research for that was the Kirk Session records or the, uh, uh, Kirk records in general presbytery as well. And what struck me from them and I, and, and, um, what strikes most people is how human the records are. And, um, how interesting <laughs> these people—the the particularly ministers that we think of as very um, staid and dull, or um, uh, somehow um, inhuman—are um, actually <laughs> um, uh, very um, well human. <laughs> I suppose uh, there's a uh, one of our contributors, Felicity Maxwell, has a great quote in her chapter that I think really summarizes my approach to this, and it's that um, the book is prioritizing the human over the abstract. And so as Chris says, it's it's looking at the par- the minister in the parish context uh, interacting with his parishioners, neighbors, um, own family. And it's um, also using biography to, to really get a sense of the minister himself.
1: Mm. Now, I mean, it's a really remarkable book in, in lots of ways. Of course, there are many edited volumes published every year, but but very few of them could really claim to be as groundbreaking as this volume is because, as you've indicated, it's it's a volume that's focused on individuals deeply human, but but individuals who are absolutely at the centre of local life, of parish life. So that being the case... Why has it taken until now for scholars really to begin to get to to grips with this? Why has the study of the clergy, even the study of preaching, been so often so marginal to the study of early modern Scotland?
2: Well, if you think about early modern Scottish history as an industry, there's only so many of us. And so these other kind of um, impulses, these different waves of scholarship have encompassed the minister, but never... Got to grips with him as, as you say, this this human entity in the, in the middle of a network of web of parish relationships. So, I think there's also this, as I said before, there's this fear that looking at, at ministers is is going to be unfashionable, is going to start um, perhaps unpicking things that we don't want to talk about as historians or theologians, for that matter. And ultimately, it's about I think I think our issues with this as a topic come from how challenging it is, because what we often fall into are stereotypes of clerics. Um, and having to kind of establish ways of dealing with that complexity, how do we pigeonhole such a, an array of different types of people? It becomes incredibly challenging as a, as a historian then. Um, so whereas we have the, the, the phrase clergy on the front of the book, actually that group is incredibly amorphous, you know, and so and it, it's trying to get to the to the complexity of that experience. And I think, to be honest with you, I think that's a challenge. And I think that's if we think about about modern scholarship as well, perhaps modern scholarship kind of mitigates against thinking about those complex processes. But the irony of course is that the material that we have, as Catherine said really well before, sessions, presbyteries, synods, diaries, personal correspondence, love poetry, etc. All actually helps us add flesh to that humanity. Um, it just takes very concerted effort in terms of the archival research to be able to uncover that. Russell, have I done a, a, a decent job there? Yeah,
0: I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things we kind of trace out in the introduction to the book um, is, is really the kind of, I guess, the journey, the historiography of, of the Scottish Reformation has been on really since the 19th century. And, and you know, we, we we look at how actually, um, if you go back to the 19th century, that there were lots of accounts of ministers, particularly very prominent ministers, people like John Knox, people like uh, Alexander Henderson or Samuel Rutherford. Um, and they were almost sort of hagiographical accounts, these uh, accounts that looked to see uh, the, 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 great man of history, uh, directed by divine providence to overthrow the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and, um, I, I guess we noticed that really actually, um, the, 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 historiography had moved away from the clergy because they resisted this kind of hagiographical trend. Um, and they actually placed other forces center stage in the process. So, um, had made the, uh, the Reformation, and when I say the Reformation I really mean the kind of long process of, of reform in Scotland, um, about other forces, whether that was uh, borough elites, or whether it's uh, the, the uh, interactions and, and the role of uh, the laity and the community and, and culture more widely in shaping uh, the Reformation in Scotland, and all those things are really valuable and important, um, but I guess our concern was that the clergy were being a little bit written out of of, of the picture entirely and so we wanted to bring them back in centre stage into uh, the narrative of uh, early modern Scotland uh, in in the ways that Chris and Catherine have have described already, Um, but wanted to bring them back at at that more human level, um, acknowledging that there there was a diversity of personalities, um, that they they were often uh, flawed, that they Uh, taking more stock of the role of their families behind the scenes uh, and not simply uh, what happened in the pulpit uh, as as much as I love talking about what happened in the pulpit uh, but uh, recognising actually that that all of those facets make up these men of God, these people who serve uh, within uh, the the Scottish Kirk Um, and so um, I I guess ours is an exercise in, in trying to if they've been the clergy had been sort of sent into historiographical exile, trying to bring them back uh, and and place them uh, at the front
1: of the story. Mm. And, I mean, I, I'm very struck by um, all three of you mentioning the um, exigencies and variety of, of ministerial life. Um, Catherine emphasising their, their deep humanity, the humanity of their experience. Chris, that um, they could be the agents of violence. Um but also, as a number of chapters indicate, they were the subjects of violence, and they were frequently deeply unpopular. So, given that they were agents of change, or agents of moral reformation, or upholding some idea of godliness that was not oft, not always, widely shared uh, in individual parishes, why did men take up this position?
3: Uh, well, um, first of all, I don't, I don't think they were frequently deeply unpopular. I think there are are Uh, With any um, profession, especially, I I suppose the the modern phrase is a public-facing role, that you're going to have disputes. And some of these disputes can um, broil over into um, uh, national crises. Um, But um, I think for the most part, they get along well and they do their job well. And to take this um, pick up this vocation is, is is something that must have been um, deeply considered that this isn't uh, this isn't a job into which one just falls. It requires an tense and rigorous education. It requires um, a series of... Uh, 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 what am I trying to say? It require uh, it requires other people to 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 vet you and to um, approve you and place you, and so it's it's something that you're really going to want to have to do. And I and I think the most ministers are committed to the word, and they're committed to preaching and 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 doing the best for their communities as they see it in in terms of theology and doctrine um it was um that i think if, if it if it wasn't for that commitment it's it's not a terribly glamorous job it's often poorly paid it can be itinerant there's a lot of admin involved um there is of course um uh, personal interpersonal uh roles with parishioners, uh, parish elites, national elites, sometimes you have um, the monarch uh, involved in uh, local disputes. So it's, it's um, even though we can see ill-tempered or ill-behaved or um, poor ministers, ministers who are poor at their job, uh, I think it, overall they're a um, competent, sincere, um and um committed a bunch.
1: Mm. They 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 were sincere, weren't they? Many of them wrote a great deal about their vocation. They idealized it in some respects, and I suppose tried their best to live up to those ideals. How how did they imagine what their role was all about? What what did it mean to be a minister? Yeah, well I think um certainly well
0: one of the things that um Dean Dawson very nicely draws out for us in, in in the afterwards, I guess we've used on the title word clergy, but actually they prefer to refer to themselves as ministers or preachers. And preaching was really central to their identity and, and their sense of vocation. Um, as as Protestants, they, they were uh, people committed to the Bible uh, and to the authority of the Bible and to um, the fact that it was uh, scripture that was uh going to be effective in, uh, in in all that they were doing in their ministries and so they, they place that front center and they often place preaching uh front center and um, one of the things that's interesting about when they preach is they preach about the bible but actually often they tell us quite a lot about what they think about who an ideal minister should be as well uh we get um, a good glimpse into um through what they they say in the pulpit about what they actually expected of those who were undertaking their role Uh, and um, the the first chapter in the the book um, written by uh, Mickey Brock uh, really focuses on this and she talks about uh, preaching about the ideal minister in in post-reformation Scotland Um, and really there she uh, you know draws out uh, these ideas that um, about the importance of the delivery of the sermon. I mean, obviously, those who were preaching were to be committed to Reformed theology. That was, um, first and foremost for them, that was of, of, of the utmost importance. Um, but, but Mickey also really draws out uh, the idea that sermons were meant to be clear. Uh, they uh, were meant to be relatively short, um, short by standards of the early modern period, which meant that they normally meant to be at least an hour long, Um, and so on. But by the standards of the day, they weren't to be long-winded and that they were to be uh, delivered with uh, wisdom uh, and and so forth. And so um, there was a sense in which the person who was uh, the ideal minister was to be skilled in what they did. They would be skilled in this task of preaching. Uh, Now, that, uh, when we emphasize preaching, that's not to to diminish other aspects of their role. And maybe we'll we'll be able to come on to some of those uh, as well. But certainly, uh, they were to be skilled in preaching, and they were also to be godly in their lifestyle that a lot is made of uh counterfeit preachers those who um, uh don't have uh a, a godly lifestyle uh that is um, in keeping with what with what they're preaching with their message uh it is a, a a kind of a, a resistance to those who are mere flatterers who from the pulpit simply tell people what they want to hear. Uh, instead, the minister is to tell, the good godly minister, at least, is meant to tell people hard truths uh, and they have to be humble uh, in in their um, in, in how they go about things. And, and ultimately, there's be people who are uh, uh, applying the truths they're preaching about to themselves. They're not simply to be people who are um, engaged in, in a form of entertainment when they uh, step up into the pulpit. Uh, and so uh, now... Uh, one of the things Mickey recognises and I think probably the ministers themselves recognise is that they didn't always live up to these ideals Uh, and um, part of what's interesting about how they preach uh, about the ideal minister is is sort of managing expectations of their hearers, managing their expectations that uh, that, that the work of ministry is hard and it's difficult uh, and so that they they shouldn't be, um, have have too high expectations of their, their ministers at times and so Uh, There was this process of negotiation uh, between uh, the preacher and these hearers, uh, but certainly they they liked to talk about um, what uh, an ideal minister was like.
1: And obviously those who perhaps might have been most concerned with the idealisation of the minister would be his wife and his children. It's quite remarkable that a number of the chapters in the volume raise the issue of clerical families, don't they? What, What was it? that made ministers who faced opprobrium, even hostility, what made them eligible as potential husbands?
3: Why marry a minister? Um, Well, uh, I think, again, it it comes down to commitment to the word, a belief, uh, a deep belief and commitment to that. It is a demanding role, um, as one of our uh, chapters discusses. It um, requires uh, essentially almost when it goes maybe so far as co-ministry, but it's certainly supporting the minister in um, in a, at home. So in in order to enable him to carry out ministry fully, and so I think again it's it's. Um, as another chapter shows, it, it's uh, uh, love, obviously, uh, <laughs> um, can come into it. And uh, again, I think it's this um, willingness to devote their lives to this cause.
1: One of the one of the ways in which the book is organized is to emphasize varieties of experience across space and time. In the last clutch of chapters, I suppose. There's material on the Orkneys, on ministerial experience in Edinburgh. John Jury, who's an exceptional figure in many respects, and Hugh Binning, um, minister during the Covenanting period and early Cromwellian period over in Glasgow. So what do these chapters tell us about the variety of clerical experience across Scotland and through time? I think they tell us that it's varied, as as we've
2: already mentioned. But more than that, I think it's suggesting the different personalities of men who are becoming ministers. We're moving towards a place where we're considering what the minister faced in response. It's not just ministers going on moral crusade in parishes. It's for example like in Michael Graham's chapter thinking about how uh, borough elites in St Andrews will react to certain things a minister says in a pulpit or the um, the uh, landowners in Leith, in Claire McNulty's chapter and, and how that influences elections of clerics so ultimately it's that it's that variation but it's a, in a much richer way than i think we saw up to now this isn't just a, a binary thing of urban and rural scotland or you know clerics who are scholars first and then preachers second there's there's a much more complex picture going on here and, and I, th- I i would hope that we that the, the chapters in this book Prevent us making those simplifications in the in the future. I mean, if you think about preachers today, the reasons for people going into that vocation are numerous, and I think we should do our, our subjects of historical inquiry at the same credit of considering the complexity of their experiences, their desires, their motivations, and their contexts. Above all, being a preacher in St Andrews is not, was not the same as being a preacher in Kirkwall. For example, and I think the chapters in the volume, in in those case studies from scholars from a variety of different backgrounds, actually do a really lovely job of, of putting that texture on on ministry.
0: Yeah,
1: very good, Russell.
0: Well, yeah, I think I would just I would add to to what Chris is saying in, in terms of you see that even and this isn't really the focus of any of the, the chapters themselves, but it comes across the whole the, the kind of difference in temperaments in in ministers. You know, I, I guess coming back to my earlier point with the kind of figures who, who proliferated in nineteenth-century literature uh, were often known for their, their burning zeal, and, and I guess some of those ministers uh, are there. People like James Sharp in, in Leith, you know, goes on this kind of reform moral reformation uh, in the parish of South Leith to, to bring about change there. But actually, when you look at people like John Jury, uh, or uh, who has this kind of more ironic ministry, uh, or you look at uh Hugh Binning, who, who Nathan Hood discusses in, in the final chapter of the book, who uh really preaches uh, about uh moderation in his sermons. He wants to take uh love uh, and love for God uh and uh, and love of neighbour uh, as being um the the, the virtue that, that moderates the affections and brings them into right alignment. Uh you you see actually this kind of variety of temperaments there. Uh, again quite a contrast when you look at people like uh david black and Robert wallace who are discussed discussed in michael uh, graham's chapter who uh end up in uh, all sorts of fraught uh, political disputes in St andrews and so um again i guess one of the things we've, we've mentioned already but this this very human aspect of uh, of ministry and this and this very this diversity of, of ministers i think um mm. comes through i think one of the other things to say is you know we obviously tend to emphasize um mm. Uh, the 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 clergy in early modern Scotland is being reformed, and that's because of uh, the, the settlement that really comes about after fifteen sixty. But uh, in Beth Tapscott's chapter, uh, one of the things you, you really see is actually the variety of, of, of confessions that are influencing Scotland in those early stages: uh, Lutheran, uh, Zwinglian, uh, uh, and so forth. And so, actually, um, I, I guess it's uh, it, the volume encourages us to be attentive to do that hard work that Chris is describing and think about, uh, who, it, who are these clergy that we're talking about? What are they like temperamentally, not, and as well as geographically, uh, where do they sit? But where do they sit theologically? Um, and I guess as a lot of recent scholarship is, is pushing us to think about some of the diversity within Reformed theology, even to think more carefully about that, uh, um, mm-hmm. when we think about the Scottish clerics as well, rather than assuming that they are um, monolithic
1: in, in some way. Yes, a, a very important agenda, isn't it? So the, the the book has really set out what might be a manifesto for, oh, I'm tempted to use the word revolution, I know that's a little bit over the top, but certainly a sea change in the way we're going to think about the subject the book is about, isn't it? I mean, it is quite a radical agenda for rethinking in fundamental ways the, the the role the function the personality the idealization uh, the challenges facing the implications of being a minister in early modern Scotland so what comes next? How are you as a group of scholars or as individuals going to take this agenda and push it forward and and, and really help us see in some more granularity what what it was what it meant to be a minister in early modern Scotland And
2: for me, the the answer to this, uh, and I'm going to plug another project here, is mapping the Scottish Reformation. So, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in trying to aggregate a lot of this information to say, okay, as Russell said before, we know so much about ministers like Knox, Melville and others, but there are many others elsewhere in the country that we don't know much about. And that's got a genealogical aspect, but it's also important for us thinking about broader trends like migration how long people are serving in parishes and other things like that. So um, I think the Scottish Reformation is, is uh, where my attentions lie at the
1: moment. Very good.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would I'd say Chris is, is doing valuable work. He's, he's slightly underselling it there, really, in, in terms of taking Hugh Scott's fasted, uh, which was been for many years a repository, and, and, and bringing it into the digital age and, and correcting it and updating it. And so Chris is, is doing us all a great service, really, um mm-hmm. bringing together that. Uh, Data him and, and Mickey Brock, was involved in that as well. Um, in, in terms of my projects, uh, next, uh, I'm working on an intellectual biography of William Guild, who was the subject of a doctoral thesis. Uh, and so I guess trying to take this um, uh, approach of being attentive to ministers and uh, the particularities of their life, and their context, and their ministry, and apply that process to one individual. Uh, I'm also uh, working uh, alongside Matthew Bogan uh, on uh, an edition of some of Andrew Gray's sermons, so I'm looking forward to um, making those more widely available. We, I discuss some of those in uh, in the chapter, uh, my chapter in the book, and so uh, I'll be working on those as well.
3: And uh, um, I'm uh, currently um, working on um, my monograph on um, uh, Reform Northeast Scotland and Working on this has certainly informed how I will be revising some of that and a new project on charitable fundraising for co-religionists in Europe and looking uh, particularly at the role of the minister in coordinating all of that.
1: Well, Those sound like important and fascinating projects uh, and and research questions. But for now, Chris, Catherine, Russell, um, I want to say thank you for coming on to the program to talk about your new book. The Clergy in Early Modern Scotland, just published by Boydell in the St Andrew's Studies in Scottish History series. Um, it's a great book. Uh, it is genuinely groundbreaking. And I think there's going to be a generation of scholarship having to respond to, 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 to the questions the outline here. So thank you and thanks for your time in coming and sharing your work and being willing to talk about it. Thanks for having us.
3: Thank you. Thanks. For-
1: <laughs> well, thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.